shade of it all. (laughs) (laughs) What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for All the Saints and the Aints, better known as Holy Shit Pod, a holy irreverence, a reverently holy conversation about spirituality, culture, and the world. I'm the choir director in your home church who flicks his wrist and rocks with a twist and sometimes sips communion with his pinky finger out, but the whole church tolerates it because I just make the choir sound so good. The Reverend Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Maxwell, but you can just call me Brandon. Well, that must make me your favorite auntie who's always wearing cargo pants, flannel, and a tool belt with the roommate your mother calls my friend who just so happens to sleep in the same bed with me. But let's be honest, we all know it's more than a friendship. The Reverend Karen Teresa Ricks. But you can call me Katie. Unless you want to call her Karen, because sometimes you are a Karen. I am just in need of salvation, Brandon. Lord, please deliver me from this whiteness. Oh, ah. Jesus. Glory. Hallelujah. Deliver her, Jesus, in all of her white ways. <laughs> I, I know. It's a one-point prayer. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know who the hell I am. I, I guess based on what y'all said, I'm everybody's formerly diabetic favorite uncle who always makes sure everybody feels safe in love. I'm the nigga that cuss your mama when she makes homophobic comments when you bring in your same-sex partner to the cookout. That ain't his friend, Gina. That's his husband. He told you three (laughs) times. That's his husband. Y'all know me. I'm Pastor Sam. Today, the category is Born Again Believer Vogue. In today's word of pot, we are talking about soteri- soteri- mm. In today's word of pot, we're talking about soteriology or salvation if you don't come here for seminary lecture topics. This discussion comes from a longtime friend of the pod, the most holy and smooth Reverend D. Moye. But we're not one of those churches that just jump straight into the sermon. We gotta ease you into it. There's gotta be a little bit of a prelude, a little bit of foreplay, if you will. So we're gonna ease on into this thing with a few church announcements for the good of the congregation, and with that. Let's get into it. Good morning, good morning, church. I said good morning, good morning, church. Good morning. Are we supposed to say good morning? In my church, you always reply good morning when somebody... Even if we're on the chancel or in the pulpit or whatever? Everybody says good morning. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, pastor. It's good to be here in the holy city of pod one more time. Before we get too deep into the announcements, I gotta say, y'all have been serious on the right end and call in tip. We always mean it when we say that we love hearing from you because that makes this podcast more of a relationship. So keep on calling, keep on writing, keep on DMing us on social, slide into our DMs. We love hearing what's on your mind and attempting to incorporate it into our episodes. And we also love it when you disagree with us. Speaking of disagreements, that leads to our first announcement. Craig Cusmall from Virginia sent us a message following up on episode 29, wherein we discussed Roe v. Wade and the Texas abortion law. Katie, read, Rita. Craig writes, hey, Sam, Katie, and Brandon. I just listened to episode... Who's she barking at? (laughs) My dog do not just randomly bark. Craig writes, Hey, Sam, Katie, and Brandon. I just listened to episode 29 of the Holy Shit Pod. Lil Nas X versus Boosie, Rove versus Wade, and The People versus Texas. I think it may be helpful if you focused on Casey versus Planned Parenthood from 1992. This case seems more on point for analyzing the new Texas law as it occurred more recently than Roe v. Wade. I fear that the belief that Roe v. Wade is the law of the land may obscure the point that in the Casey decision, SCOTUS drastically changed the landscape 
and allowed state-based limitations as well as the concept of viability. Thus, any review of the Texas six-week law will likely be assessed by the Casey standards rather than Roe. Okay, you can stop reading right now. You don't have to read the rest of this shit. Don't listen to that hater, Katie. You know haters gonna hate. This the best part of the message. I'm over it. Mm, now, this may be the bourbon talking. Definitely of, the bourbon. Definitely the bourbon. <laughs> but I think Sam's analysis in episode 28 and 29 is solid. Well, shit. Whatever. All hail Sam. <laughs> oh, my God. The Archbishop of Praise and Worship, His Eminence, and the Most Right Reverend shall, shall be, be respected. respected. Y'all better respect my name. Keep up the good work, friends. Oh, yeah. Remember the Sameth and keep it holy. Craig. I love Craig. Let me tell y'all, Craig, you my new favorite listener. I think that that needs to be on the T-shirt. The remember the Sameth part? No, the all hell Sam part. Everybody needs to be walking around wearing this shirt. Brandon, I'm getting you one for Christmas. I shan't wear it. You shall. I shan't. You shall. Ain't nobody going to buy that shirt. I'm going to use it as kindling. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first, thank you for the email, Craig, even though your allegiance seems to be to someone that isn't me. But for the record, I do think that Craig's email actually furthers the point that I've been trying to make for the last several weeks every single time that we have these conversations. Now, I did not talk about this case, and I think that it is important to bring in Casey versus Planned Parenthood, because I think what I was trying to say, perhaps ineffectively, is this assumption that Roe v. Wade is sacred and is holy really is a misnomer, because there's been so much to eat away at it through the years. But to Craig's point, it's not the Texas abortion ban of 2021 that ate away at that. It's actually Casey versus Planned Parenthood that paved the way for these things in 1992 by introducing these non-scientific concepts of viability and the heartbeat stuff, like all of that drama that they introduced back then and have been working on for the last 20, 30, 40 years, that's what made the Texas law possible. So you're right, Craig. You are right. But I don't think you were supporting Sam. By extension, Craig, if you were right, I was also right. (laughs) So, Brandon, I've been with you the whole time on this. But when you said that's a point I've been trying to make and then you said something that you haven't said yet, that isn't actually the point you've been trying to make. (laughs) But I acknowledge that I hadn't said it. You said that's the point I was trying to make. I did acknowledge it. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you, Katie. I said, this is the point I've been trying to make. What point? And then I said, and then I also came back and said, now, I to Craig's point, I didn't mention the Casey law. So you haven't been trying to make the point. You just became Sam in episode 28. Let me tell you a story about the time I was in Palestine. <laughs> and sometimes both. <laughs> I'm just saying. And sold us both, huh? Okay, Katie. I tell the truth. Child, you ain't telling no truth up in here. So I don't know if y'all saw, but uh, there's a Texas doctor who is last week revealed that he violated this new state law that bans abortions. On the morning of September the 6th, I provided an abortion to a woman who, though still in her first trimester, was beyond the state's new limit. I acted because I had a duty of care to this patient, as I do for all patients, and because she has a fundamental right to receive this care. This doctor's name is Alan Braid, and he's a physician in San Antonio, Texas. And he wrote this in an op-ed last week. And the reason he does this is because he said he fully understands that there could be legal consequences. And he was inviting those legal consequences so that this new state law could be challenged. Echoing what Brandon was saying, that was a point I was trying to make, which I had actually stated uh, <laughs> during our uh, conversation, <laughs> um, is that, that these challenges were not going to come. But the actual law 
had to exist as a law in order for it to be challenged. But I, I do think that I still think Brandon and I w- w- was agreeing on a lot of points in our conversation that day. But I see that this doctor is now doing what I, I hoped would happen once this new law uh, was passed. I'm glad that a doctor did this so that we can challenge the law. I just wish that we didn't have to do that in the first place. Well, and what I also love is the fact that Merrick Garland, you know, he keeps just having this little comeback here and kind of getting the last laugh. But he, as the attorney general, also challenged the new abortion law in Texas by filing a lawsuit against the state. So, Sam, yes, you were correct. People are going to challenge this law, and I'm glad that they already have. But to Craig's point, which none of us were making, I think (laughs) the question now is... What's the strength of Roe v. Wade based on some of these subsequent laws that have that have happened. We're staying up to date on this and we'll keep talking about it as things emerge, as developments come out. But at the end of the day, Sam wasn't right. Katie definitely wasn't right. (laughs) Because I can't be right if Brandon's not right. (laughs) But you told me that I was right at the end of that episode. Go back and listen to it. Y'all tell me what y'all think. Announcement number two. Step aside, Delta. There's a new COVID-19 variant in town. While the Delta variant continues to be the driving force behind infections in the United States, a new R1 variant is feared to be more infectious than previous strains of the virus and could even evade current vaccines. The new strain has been detected in 47 states in the U.S., 35 countries worldwide, and two U.S. territories. Currently, the state of Maryland has reported 399 cases of the R1 variant and is the highest impact state at this time. The short of it is, we are not out of the woods yet. Now I'm trying to find an article that I just read on the toilet. You read an article on the toilet or on the toilet, comma, you read an article. Whichever way you want to visualize it. I'm leaving that in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nasty. (laughs) They did just approve Pfizer for the 5 to 11-year-olds, I believe. So hopefully even getting kids vaccinated will help, I would say, would help against this variant, but... It says that it can evade current vaccinations. There is good news, but the whole issue is it may not actually matter with the R1 variant because it's still more infectious and transmissible even among those with the vaccine. Yeah, and the the article I was telling you about, um, the title says it's far from over, but Delta coronavirus wave might be the last major wave of infection, former FDA commissioner says. And so this was basically just talking about how this former commissioner really says he thinks that the Delta wave may be the last major wave of infection, assuming Nothing unexpected happens. And I think he's comparing this to the belief that rising levels of vaccination will protect against future variants as well. Because he cites that like 76.7% of adults have received at least one vaccine dose. And that if we can get to 80 to 85% of the population, then we'll start to see rates decline. I know that that's among like the Delta variant, but I think there's an assumption built into that that is going to also provide protection against future variants. Well, I most certainly hope that that is the case. I continue to just say I have no earthly idea what is going on with this pandemic. And ultimately, the percentages still don't seem to be creeping up as quickly as I would hope. Katie, how's your anxiety today? (laughs) You know, the reality is that everything regarding the pandemic is not expected. So while I read a similar article that they said that the numbers should be decreasing even through March, even through like the flu season, I don't know how they can predict that now. But my anxiety is not high or it is the same. I think I'm still not interested in saying we're out of the woods yet. 
especially when these pockets just keep coming up. So in Georgia or DeKalb County, the fully vaccinated population is 35%. We're fucked. (laughs) So yeah, across the country, 76, that's great. It's above 70, but not down here in the South. We're still rocking low numbers. And as much as we are all tired of talking about COVID-19, I'm tired of talking about it. Like, I'm so exhausted. I'm over it. Seriously, please stop. But people aren't being vaccinated. And I'm assuming, based on our demographic reports, that a large percentage of our listeners live in the Southeast region. And if you are a listener who isn't vaccinated, please go do that right now. That show reasonable act of service unto the Lord. And if you are a person whose mother, a father, a granddaddy, a cousin, a brother has not been vaccinated, call them, encourage them. You would be surprised what peer pressure can do. My whole family loved on my younger brother to make sure he got vaccinated. And after a really long time, it worked. My partner and I helped one of our friends encourage her spouse to be vaccinated and just sending these loving messages and saying, hey, I'm really concerned about you. I really want you to be okay. And that really is the tone. Let's not call people stupid who aren't being vaccinated. Let's choose to be loving and encourage those that we care about to be vaccinated. Amen, church. Amen, Amen, church. For today's final announcement, we do want to revisit Katie's announcement from last week. Katie, why don't you pick up where we left off before Sam so rudely interrupted you? Sam interrupted her? I think that was you, the most holy pontiff pontificating BS. Oh! Don't know he didn't. It was definitely you, but let's not unpack that today lest we get derailed again. I won't make a comment. (laughs) (laughs) This is a really tragic situation. So a few days before the United States withdrew all of their troops from Afghanistan, They were tracking a vehicle that they thought they had seen at an ISK or ISIS-K compound. And during that time, you might remember, there were suicide bombings. There were all kinds of dangerous situations happening. So the U.S. had a drone following this car for over eight hours. And when it pulled out of its driveway, the drone struck it, blew up the car. And what the U.S. Central Command has now indicated is that the person they were tracking is an aid worker and nine members of his family, the youngest of which was two. At first, there was a secondary explosion, and so the military was trying to say that that was proof that they had explosives, but it was really just a propane tank in their yard. I'm catching up with the story. I didn't track it. So tell me more about who the aid worker was. Is this like a U.S. aid worker? No, this was an Afghan aid worker. It wasn't a U.S. aid worker. I think all 10 of the folks from from what I read were Afghan. Um, but this was an Afghan aid worker who was kind of doing work in partnership with organizations. And some of those may have been U.S. organizations. And I heard about the propane tank, uh, but I also heard that like um, he was also like carrying like water in his car. Like that's what they were loading in, right? Yeah, that's what they were loading in. Exactly. And I think um, I forget how many of these folks killed were children. Um, but a number, uh, quite a number of them were children. Yeah. And my question wasn't rooted in trying to say Afghan versus American. I'm not trying to have any white common sense conservatism operative in my comments. I was more so trying to understand what the nature of this person's profession was and the context that he was living in. I, was, I, I just haven't read the story. Yeah, absolutely. So his name is Ahmad Nasser, and he was he had actually been a translator for U.S. forces, which is even more interesting if you think about the fact that those are the folks that the U.S really hadn't planned on figuring out a way of getting out. And some of the other victims had worked for international organizations and held visas allowing them to enter the U.S. So these could be people who already had the visas to get out. And so these are people who had helped the United States in their efforts. These are the people that we were trying to help get out after not having a plan to do so. And that's who we ended up 
bombing. I mean, but that's the reality of this thing. Like, if, when you have this culture that values allegedly spreading democracy across the world and empire building around the world, you will spare no expense. And I do think this is very clearly related to last week's conversation about evangelism and what happens to the people who we evangelize and proselytize across time and history, whether that be sending someone on a ship that precedes the army and the military, mm. that gives people Jesus to domesticate them and prepare them for occupation. That's good, Bishop. Walking to the Walmart and standing outside with the track. There's so much collateral human damage. And so you can't claim to be caring about somebody, proselytizing somebody, democratizing somebody while you're killing them. I'm sorry. It doesn't work. When you start preaching, you know, I I gotta, you know, I jump in. I got to give my amens because it's true. Katie, speak for your people. Account. We have to have a new segment called Katie, Speak for Your People. (laughs) (laughs) All right, people of five. This concludes our church announcements, and that seems like a good spot for a break. So we're going to pause to take up the offering. And when we come back, we'll discuss D. Moye's question about soteriology, salvation. And I think he even mentions something about Calvinism, a topic that I have personally been avoiding, as some of you well know, who have written in to ask similar questions. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with the word of pod for the people of pod. Thanks Thanks be to pod. Hey there, pod friends. Holy shit. Pod is brought to you by Theolab Media. Theolab Theolab. exists to transform how humans engage faith, spirituality, culture, and the world around them. Yeah. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on Holy Shit Pod, you can support our work by visiting patreon.com forward slash Theolab Media. Yeah. Become a supporter today at whatever giving level. Yeah. So weird. Become a supporter today at whatever giving level you are able Every little bit helps. Yeah. The offering basket is being passed. Yes. Why don't you put a little love in it? Put a little love in the Patreon. I'm so tired of Brandon putting you on these ads. You don't know how to ask right. Yeah. <laughs> well, how would you ask? Put a little love in it. <laughs> I was trying to be like you. Daisy know how to ask. That dog be barking. Welcome back, people of pod. As I mentioned at the top of the show today, we are discussing soteriology or salvation. To get things started, I want to read an email from a longtime friend of the pod, D. Moye. D writes, hey, saints, so churchy. I am a longtime pod listener that loves pumpkin pie just like Brandon. LOL, LOL is for real because I don't like pumpkin pie unless my cousin makes it. I feel like the past few episodes have walked right up to the door of soteriology, but you all don't seem to want to open the door. So this is my attempt to initiate this conversation and you're not the first. What is your perspective of reformed theology and the long time debate between Calvinists and other views about who is actually saved or can be saved? What's the point of preaching if proselytizing and or evangelizing is pointless and only the sovereignly chosen are saved? You may be surprised to know that this conversation has resurfaced in some black churches recently. Some preachers believe you have no control over your choice to be saved. They believe that the Holy Spirit puts you in a trance and you wake up saved at the front of the church. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. Do you really? Thanks and regards. He said, look at him, then gave himself a title. Mm -hmm. The most holy, smoothest reverend, D. Moye. 
Thank you for the question, D. Moye. We appreciate it. Most holy smooth reverend. Is it like smooth like style or smooth like butter, like cocoa butter skin? It's the most holy smoothest. See, this is why we don't do titles because you niggas can't get it right. You said the most holy smooth reverend. That would indicate there are multiple smooth reverends and there might be, but he is the smoothest reverend. You remember Sam is humble. Yeah. So he notices these things. I love our listeners because y'all don't ever write in and ask a question. Y'all write in and give context. And then you got like 57 questions embedded in one email. No tea, no shade, because it makes for a very rich word of pot discussion. So before we dive into responding directly to those questions, let's backtrack a little bit because... I got a question. What you want? What the hell is soteriology? You know what that shit is. You went to seminary. (laughs) (laughs) But nobody says those words. I said salvation. I was hoping that would lead you into giving the background for the people who didn't connect. Oh, what I was already doing before you interrupted (laughs) me? What you was doing, I was giving you a lead in. Oh my gosh. Okay. (laughs) That was a great lead in. I'm sorry I missed it. Soteriology is the study of religious doctrines of salvation. Salvation occupies of special significance in many religions. In the academic field of religious studies, soteriology is understood by scholars as representing a key theme in many different religions. I think Christianity claims they do it best. But ultimately, soteriology is actually about comparing various ideas about what salvation is and how it is obtained. So if you say salvation in certain church contexts, everybody knows what that means in that context. If I'm in a black Baptist church and somebody preaches about being saved, I know exactly what they mean. What soteriology says is what you think about salvation isn't the only thought in the room. Other people also have thoughts and perspectives. Does that sum it up pretty well? Did y'all talk about soteriology in y'all's theology classes in seminary? We didn't talk about soteriology, but we... Y'all really didn't talk about it? We talked about salvation. We don't talk about soteriology, or I didn't pay attention. We <laughs> talk about salvation. Maybe we talked about that. I don't listen to big words like that because they don't mean anything in the church. Oh, that's very true. Did you talk about the function and the role of Jesus? Yes. Duh. That's my neighbor. <laughs> well played. Does Jesus have a salvific function? Is there like a saving function with, with Jesus? So let me tell you, I don't know if this is what I learned in seminary, but I believe <laughs> that Jesus saved everyone once. That there's not like a process of continued need for salvation. It already happened. So when the people knock on my door and say, are you saved? I say, yeah, 2,000 years ago. D. Moye very clearly points out John Calvin and Calvinism as a question for him. And so, but, so what you're saying does not sound like what Calvin says. So Calvin was misunderstood, but then the, the people that we hear about are the like neo-Calvinists or what have you. Theoretically, what it was that Calvin was trying to be pastoral. There was nothing you could do or not do that would uh, bring you into the kingdom of God or uh, bring you salvation. It was supposed to be pastoral. It doesn't sound pastoral. And so people after Calvin made it worse, right? Like only the chosen are going to make it somewhere. And so then you get this idea of who the hell cares what you do if you're going to be saved regardless. So I don't know where my history of thought went, but or how I made it to today. Yes, we're Calvinists. But we think about it in terms of a response to salvation or a response to grace. So when you ask the question, um, why do anything? Why would you tell the truth? Or why would you be kind to people? Why would you seek justice in the world if it doesn't matter? But 
the way I look at it, and I think many Presbyterians look at it, is to say, we receive this grace, we receive this salvation, and then our response is always to be faithful. So this is a helpful read because it already presents us with attention. If our editors were to take your comments and put them right next to Dee's email, and don't do that, I don't want to do that in the edit, but let's just say we did. If we did that right here, I would come away thinking that there's no way you and Dee could be talking about the same John Calvin. So you mentioned a lot of things there, neo-Calvinism, Calvinism. And before we press any further, let me break down a few things for folks who didn't come to the Church of Holy Shit for a divinity school lecture. <laughs> um, so first, we've got John Calvin. Calvin was a French pastor who also engaged in research about God, theology, and he is one of the many leaders of the Protestant Reformation. If that's a new word for you, the Protestant Reformation was both a religious debate and political challenge. Don't forget the politics. It was a political challenge to the Catholic Church, and this debate happened among the Western Church. If you've heard us use that term, the Western Church or Western Christianity before, that basically means white people. Second, Calvinism is the school of religious or theological thought, and I would even argue a school of political thought that was inspired by John Calvin's teachings. There are five main points to Calvinism that have been summarized by using the acronym or the acrostic TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Now, before you press the little 30-second fast-forward button, I'm going to give y'all Tulip a la Brandon. (laughs) So stick with me. I feel like we need a little bit of music in the background to make this more bearable for the listeners. Because anytime, anytime that I talk about John Calvin, for some reason, the only thing that's playing in the background is the blood will never lose its power. So let's drop that in the edit. Let's drop a little the blood in the background. <laughs> That's what we need. Ah, never lose his power. So here we go. So T, total depravity. You may also hear this called radical corruption. Basically, it means humans ain't shit. (laughs) Humans are perverse, unholy, (laughs) sinful, and they do not have the moral or spiritual ability to trust in or choose God. Just like Adam and Stephen in the garden, we will always choose something other than God. So again, humans ain't shit. That just sounds like you're to preach. (laughs) You, unconditional election. Now, this is where Dee's email comes in. As many have interpreted this, God is like Delta Airlines, not the Delta variant, Delta Airlines. Because on Delta, unless you fly in every single day, the best you're going to get is zone one when it comes time to load. And the diamond medallion folks are always going to board the plane first, period. Those who are saved, they got diamond medallion status. Those who receive grace got diamond medallion status. And maybe a few platinum folks are in there as well. But regardless, the Delta God has already made the decision, the choice of who gets to board the plane or who is saved. Now you get down to the third letter, L, limited atonement. Now this is why we're playing the blood in the background, huh? So this is also the place where I believe Calvinists basically make God a petty motherfucker. I'm not saying that's what God is. Quit clutching your pearls. I'm saying those who hold this theological perspective create a petty ass God. Because this basically says that God allowed God's only child to be killed, not for the salvation of the entire world, but for the salvation of the elect, those God chose. You heard correctly, even though Jesus' death was powerful enough 
even though the blood still has all this power to save everybody, it's reserved only for those that God has determined, predetermined, or predestined to be saved. This is why I say that this theological perspective makes God a petty motherfucker. Moving right along, we've got I now, irresistible grace. That's the fourth letter. So you remember the diamond medallion folks from earlier? Here they go again. When diamond medallion status has been applied to your account, or when grace has been applied to your life, predestined to your life, you can't resist the urge to take advantage of it. My God. It is truly irresistible. My God. The Holy Spirit, also known as that lovely staff member who summoned you to board the plane, makes you accept the grace. There's nothing you can do to resist the urge to walk down that aisle every single time that she says, I'd like to invite all of our diamond medallion passengers to board the plane. You can't resist it. Why would you? I like I. So you want I, but not the tulip. You want to remove the tulp. I like I. So the P, last letter, stands for perseverance of the saints. It basically means once you've accepted your diamond medallion status, also known as grace, you got to keep on flying. And if for some reason you fall back down to platinum status, either A, you were never chosen by God in the first place, or B, at some point you will repent because God's grace on your life is irresistible. And you'll return to diamond medallion status or to grace or to salvation because you were already preordained, predestined, predetermined to do so. Y'all didn't know all that was in there, did you? But this is why I say, Katie, that it seems like you and D are talking about two very different Calvins. There's no way you're talking about the same person unless it is actually the case that some folks who are interpreting John Calvin, deploying Calvinism, are doing so in a manner that misunderstands his actual intent. I will tell you that at frequent points in my life, I'm all about total depravity as well, but I like the irresistible grace. And it sounds good. It not only sounds good, I believe that God constantly is pursuing us because of God's grace. And so I'm all about that. But I think what people do with that is they say that God is now irresistible to whoever God has chosen, right? So you have to, for people who think about John Calvin, the T-U-L-I-P is essential. And so if you are unconditionally elected by God, then the grace that God has for you will be irresistible because you have to submit to what God has sovereignly ordained, if you want to use that language, you to do. I hate all of that. You don't like irresistible grace, even if it's if it's offered to everyone? I don't, because I think that it suggests that God's grace, as the Christian tradition outlines it, is something that no one can resist and that no one can uh, run from and no one can flee from it. That at some point in everybody's life, they're going to feel overwhelmed by this grace of God and surrender to it. And I think that that seems very, at least in terms of how I heard you saying it and how I've heard others say it who celebrate this irresistible grace, it still seems like God is pervasive in a way that I don't believe is intended by Christian scripture. What do you, so maybe you can help me by explaining what do you mean when you say surrender to it? I mean, so I'm focusing more so on irresistibility than grace, right? It's the adjectival qualifier that for me is the issue. It, It actually is resistible. I do not have to receive God's grace. I do not have to acknowledge God's grace on my life. I don't have to acknowledge that there's a deity that's allowing me to live and that that's an act of grace. I'm, I'm not opposed to you saying that. But, but if you're talking about the irresistible grace of God or the holy, which is where I'm leaning towards now, then 
it doesn't matter if you accept it. I actually, as I say that, I realize that sounds like I'm imposing Christianity on everyone, which is not the case. I think John Calvin would say that though. Correct. Well, exactly, because that's not what I'm thinking. That's not what I'm, I'm saying. But the, in, in that is the assumption that, that it's only available through Christianity. So I think that's the difference is that we're talking about through the lens of Calvin, right? Right. Um, not through the definition that you gave us, Katie, at the beginning, because to, through the definition that you gave us, I'm with you. I'm tracking with you right there. But I agree with, if, if we're talking about what Calvin intended in Tulip, then I'm, I, I, I hear what, what Brandon is saying. Right, because it's the every knee shall bow, right, every tongue right. should confess. It's that, um, and that's not, it's not true. That's going to get me kicked out of the church. I'm going to forward it to the right people so it can. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, I was raised in a very Calvinist congregation. I wasn't aware that I was raised in that. I had no idea that that was the water I was swimming in. Me either. Only Calvin I knew was my friend from the eighth grade. And we ain't talk about none of this. All I knew was Calvin and Hobbes. Hobbes. You know, (laughs) that's all I knew. I'm in Cater generation. Uh, Like, I first became aware that I was swimming in a certain tradition's water in undergrad. I was taking a theology class, and the way that our professor talked about it was much more helpful than any of that tulip stuff and any of the Calvinist stuff. We only did that because that's how Moyer phrased the question. I would not start there traditionally. So if you have zoned out because of all that theological language, tune back in. So the three perspectives that I learned about an undergrad is the professor didn't even name them at first. He just said, there's one perspective that says only particular people are saved. That's what we just finished talking about, right? That's exclusivism. And then there's another perspective that says, uh, there's some particularity here, but it includes some folks that we might not intend. And then there's pluralism on the other end of the spectrum that basically says everybody's going to get it. Everybody's going to be saved. And the professor asked us to sit at the table that represented our perspective. Now, I was at a Baptist school. I'm the only black uh, student in the classroom. And for how I was formed, there was only one answer. And when we'd all sorted ourselves, there were only two of us sitting at the exclusivist table, me and somebody who I know was out there on January 6th protesting the election. MAGA hat and all. What's his name? I can't call his name. I ain't going to do that. (laughs) It rhymed with Donald. (laughs) You know I'm petty. But that's how I was formed. But I was sitting at the table with him, and then the majority of the students sat at the inclusivism table. There was only one uh, young white woman sitting at the pluralism table. And so I think if you think about salvation through those three lenses, is it only the chosen and the few? Or is it a few extra people, the chosen and their cousins? Or is it literally everybody and their mama gets it regardless of what they say what they declare and how they feel about their relationship with God. And for me, it's a little bit of both. It's the chosen, but it's not the chosen few. It's everybody. And, and for me, uh, and I've, I've said this phrase and people kind of, it kind of made people uneasy when I said it. Um, I believe God chooses us all. And some people might say, what about the murderer? What about the this person? What about the, that person is get, that's faulty and got all of these problems and all of these different things? And I'm still leaning into that. I'm, I'm, I'm still believing that. I haven't been convinced otherwise that God doesn't choose us all in spite of those things that we may struggle with, in spite of those things that are stains on, or, or that we would view as stains on our life here on earth. So I, I, I don't know. And maybe that's a semantics thing, Brandon, but yeah. I definitely fall into the universal category. There's no doubt for me that the holy um, who Christians call God or the people call God is in community with each and every one of us. And, and so I, if that's universalist, then, then that's what I am. I'm definitely more interested in that connection, uh, that relationship that humans have in community with one another and with God than I am 
or with the holy um, than I am with some silly doctrine that says some people are okay and some people aren't okay, whether it's chosen by humans or whether it's chosen by God. That doesn't mean anything to me. So I'm not sure if we've cleared up the waters at all, but I think that we've probably muddied them even further. If you have never, ever thought about what your opinion or perspective on salvation is, this may be a good time to start thinking about it. So if you're an exclusivist and you say only the select and the chosen and the few, the sovereignly chosen to use these language are who's getting in, then what is the point of your faith? But what, what is the impact of believing that Christianity has a VIP section, Right or that Christianity is the mean girl's clique. That's basically what you're saying. If you hold a Calvinist perspective in the way that D has outlined, Christianity is a clique. It's one of those bars where you have a bouncer and you have to be on the list or something like that. No, you can't come in. Jesus is a bouncer. Jesus is a bouncer. No, Jesus is the club itself, right? It's the, I, it, wouldn't that be it? The Holy Spirit is the bouncer. God is the club. Jesus is the bouncer. The Holy Spirit is the liquor on the inside oh, of the club. Right. Hey, stupid. Hey. They don't call them spirits for nothing. I was going to say the whole Jesus, if the narrow gate, right? Like Jesus is the one. You can come in, you cannot come in. Uh, that's not a God that I'm going to go ahead and pay any attention to. If you choose to believe that Christianity is a clique, then basically what you're saying is Jesus is the VIP section in the club and everybody can't get in and some folks are going to get turned away. And it's entirely subjective because a lot of times the bouncer does have criteria for who gets in and who gets out. Are you wearing the right thing? Are you a certain size? Are you a certain color? Is your hair done? Is your makeup cute? Are you wearing baggy clothing? Do you wear tennis shoes? All these criteria that are subjective, you have no idea what the bouncer's criteria are going to be for you getting in that night. But that's what Jesus is inside of that particular perspective. That's the function. Why preach or proselytize if only the chosen get in? You shouldn't. If Tulip is true, if God elects people, why are we preaching? Right? Because wouldn't that suggest you can clean yourself up? Like if you know what God requires, change your ways, you know. What's that scripture in the Old Testament in Chronicles? I think 2 Chronicles 14, I can't remember the exact scripture. But if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves. Well, humble. Like I am always humble. You still working on that one. Turn from their way, seek my face, then will I hear from heaven. And so I think there's this belief that, you know, stop what you're doing. You know what you're doing is wrong. Clean yourself up. Get ready. Get right. You know, that type of thing. I know, Katie, they don't say it like that in your tradition. No, 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 no. They don't do it that way. But But the idea is that you preach because you want people to respond faithfully to God. They, they, you still have to respond faithfully. Not that that gets you into heaven or not, but that a faithful person who is elect should respond. And, and if we don't know, then which of us three? I know who which of us three going. It ain't you. That's what damn. So. I was going to say, Katie, heaven is white. Oh, Katie is going. <laughs> <laughs> I just figured, Brandon, you'd go wherever Lil Nas X goes. To the depths of hell, baby. <laughs> Y'all are so special. I get you, Brandon, but I think that's what some people's argument would be. This is why we preach. Yes, God chooses, but make yourself worthy of being chosen. And so that's why people would say they preach. The thing that I also want to lift up here is the fact that John Calvin became a thing or Calvinism became a thing, not because everybody in the world agreed with it or because everybody said this is what it means to be saved, but because it was in dialogue with other theologies. Dialogue makes it seem like there's some kind of a mutual exchange of information. Anything that we have theologically is because people were fighting each other about it. And whoever was on top won. Absolutely. There's no dialogue. Whoever's in power made the decision that this one's right. These books stay in. Those books stay out. These people get to heaven. Those people don't. It was a fight. There were wars all about doctrine. 
But I do think that in the earliest stages, it was a dialogue, but then that dialogue couldn't get resolved, which escalated it to a debate and then escalated it to an f- all-out fight. And so I guess what I'm trying to say in that is, it's not always as simple as saying Calvinism is the only thing we should be talking about. Sometimes it's let's stop talking about Calvinism and let's look at who Calvin was fighting because Calvin would be a Protestant sort of offshoot of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was fighting, debating the Catholic Church. If you look at this longer thread, John Calvin's a part of this long tradition where people just are all about disagreements. The Protestant stream of Christianity is based solely on a disagreement and a fight. So anybody that comes after Martin Luther, especially in the Western context, is all about fighting. And I think that's actually how we get where we are today, where every pastor, every church feels like I have to define myself over and against what somebody else has said. But at what point are you actually talking about God? Or has your doctrine become your deity? Are you worshiping Calvinism? Are you worshiping right thought? Are you worshiping Martin Luther? Are you worshiping this theological perspective? So much so that you're no longer actually pointing people to God. Calvin was not, is not, and shall not ever be God. And if that's all you have to offer people, then you are at least one step removed from ever offering them anything sacred or holy. I mean, what is this bullshit about? The Holy Spirit magically makes you want to walk down the aisle and get saved. How do we get to the point where that's the way the Holy Spirit worked? How do we get to the point where walking down an aisle equated to someone's salvation? Mm. There is no power in your aisle. There's no power in the invitational selection. Or your walking. If the aisle has all the power, what was happening during COVID-19? That's good, Bishop. Wait, but winning any souls for Jesus. <laughs> we weren't winning any souls for Jesus. And that's why there was so much death. <laughs> That's the stupid shit you say when you believe this crap and you don't interrogate it. I ain't trying to be mean. (laughs) I'm just saying I got some questions. These are questions that need answering. So, D, I don't know if this begins to answer your question or respond to your question, but it's what came up in the conversation. And Ian, out of Florida, I know you've emailed us about this topic as well. Hopefully this wet your whistle a little bit. We may have to come back to it. I really was avoiding it. D, I think this begins to respond to your question. The last part of your email seems to make a little bit more of a personal turn, which I've already made with you. I don't attend black churches or any church really for that matter with any regularity at this point. So I was completely unaware that this perspective was still prominent or regaining prominence in black churches because I preach in churches where I can like use Toni Morrison as a text and they don't care. So but before we get into that last part of your question, let's take another quick break. I think it may be easiest to broach the final question through invitations. So hang tight, breathe, and we'll be right back with invitations for this week. Welcome back. It's sort of like we never left one another, eh? (laughs) Well, we've come once again to the end of an episode, and this is the part where we like to think about life application. I know some of our conversations can get heady and sound like we're in a seminary classroom and nobody signed up for that, not even us, not today. So I'd say all three of us are nerds and we can easily dive into theological conversations. Please somebody send us something to ask us to talk about like Cardi B or Lizzo eating her burrito like it's a burger. <laughs> I would rather talk about the theological implications of burrito eating. Cut it in the middle. Lizzo eats burritos like burgers. And I'm like, why don't you just cut it, sis? But anyway, whether you love the heady stuff or you hate it, here's how you might consider today's word of pod and apply it to your own life to take action. Karen, Samuel, what are your invitations? Um, get your house. 
Oh, yes. In order. Mm, do it today. This is, I want y'all to know, this is why I love Brandon Thomas Maxwell. Because I don't think there's a gospel song that I can sing the first line or hum the first melody and he falls right in. Listen. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I subscribe actually more to um, Katie's views. And so um, I think that if if we actually believe in the power of the cross, um, the power of the, the finished work of the cross, uh, you know, I'm about to preach in here. With my Bible. He done went to the cross. This got real Baptist real hard, real quick. It got up on Sunday. And real Christian. Have we talked about the cross at all today? <laughs> if we actually believe in this as a finished work. Let me tell you about a man. Wait a minute. She, I heard her. I heard her. She said, let me tell you about a man. Let me tell you about a man. For me, for my tradition, it's kind of like this finished work of the cross. I don't think they believe it's finished because they always say that there's other work we got to do. You got to believe. You got to pray. You got to tarry. You got to talk in tongues. You got to do. Well, shit, what was the cross for? You know, like, I believe it's important for us to exist and to live in this world just as we are as humans and to do our good work of trying to understand and respect and see the value in other human beings, regardless of what they have done toward this salvific journey, what they have confessed, who they say they believe in, you know, just take all of that shit out of it and just see and understand and love and respect one another because of that common thread of humanity that runs through us all. Karen? I just had it and then it went away. The question that arises for me as I think about an invitation is, what would your life look like? How would you interact with the world? How would you interact with other people, your loved ones, even people who drive you nuts? What would your life look like if you knew that you were loved unconditionally? Because I think that's what is the underlying theme here, this desire to be loved, this desire to be a part of whatever the holy or or the kingdom, whatever that is in your tradition. So my invitation is to think about what would your life look like if you were loved unconditionally, exactly who you are today. So my invitation, I think I may have two today. My first invitation is to read. Enneagram five. <laughs> I don't identify with any number. I am no number. But typically I hang out in the space that is where the five is located on the Enneagram. My first invitation is to read, watch, listen, whatever it is you do to learn. Because one of the things that I'm aware of about my own journey, and I like to start with myself so that it doesn't sound like I'm just preaching at you, but I've gone through this process for myself as well. But I like to always think about the water that I'm swimming in. And the fact that I was raised in one congregation and spent every year for 21 years of my life attending that one church meant that I was swimming in water and I had no idea I was surrounded by it. And so when I bumped up against other perspectives, it felt like it was earth shattering, at least faith shattering. But even stepping outside of my Baptist congregation's water to step into Christian water, it still isn't enough of a progression because still there are assumptions about what it means to be saved if you're swimming in Christian water. Christianity is not the only religion that has thoughts about what it means to be saved. Buddhism If you're thinking about salvation in that context, it's about liberation from suffering. And it's about breaking free from the cycle of compulsory rebirth by attaining nirvana. If salvation is about breaking free from compulsory rebirth, then it's no longer about being born again every single Sunday. 
rededicating your life, being baptized, being raised to new life. No, I'm actually trying to be liberated from that. Don't assume that your tradition and the water you're swimming in is the only water that's out there. My second invitation is to dialogue. If you're going to make an idol of anything, don't make it John Calvin. Don't make it Jacobus Arminius. Make it dialogue because I believe that in dialogue, two or three are present and there the spirit is also. And that's the word of pod for the people of pod. Thanks Thanks be to pod. And that brings us to the end of another service here at the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple for all the saints and ain'ts. Have we told you lately how much we appreciate you for listening? Because we do. It is true. And more than listening, we love it when you talk back. Keep sending those emails to holyshit at theolabmedia.com to ask a question, vehemently disagree with us, or to make Sam's head bigger than it already is. It's huge. Thanks again, Craig Cusmall and Dee Moyer for sending in questions for today's episode. Speaking of making my head bigger, if you really want me to feel good about myself, head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review this pod. We appreciate all ratings, but we love five stars best. And we also love reading your reviews. So please do both today. And don't forget, you can show us love over at patreon.com slash Media. All right, good people. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place. And until then, peace. Huge head, huge. It's going to be the biggest head you've ever seen. Huge. (laughs) Yeah.